Hello, my name's Matt, and I'm going to get the kettle on. While I make my coffee, I'd like to tell you a story. It's a long story in human terms, with many of the projects set in motion outlasting the people who got them moving, but it's short in terms of the span of human history overall, let alone the geological context in which it's set, with most of the action taking place in the last hundred years or so. It's the story of human activity in the Antarctic. That's where the majestic music would go if this was a proper documentary with a budget and a producer. But instead, you've got me, a biologist with a voice recorder and a caffeine habit. Now... Back to the kettle. I intend making the episodes for this series on my tea breaks. In the Antarctic, there's a lot more to putting the kettle on than just filling a vessel with water and applying heat. Brewing up successfully can take careful planning and considerable effort, and as regular hot drinks can sometimes be all that stands between a happy Antarctican going about their Antarctic business and a dehydrated, cold-soaked corpse, it's important that we get ourselves sorted out from the get-go. So this first episode is entirely dedicated to the art of making a cuppa in the Great White South. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The thirsty plight of Coleridge's protagonist in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner referred to salt water, but the issue of dehydration is the same if the water at hand is in solid rather than liquid form. When making your brew this far south, the first thing you need to do is make your water by melting snow or ice. This requires a lot of energy, so a large percentage of the cargo for any Antarctic endeavour ends up being stove fuel. If you're on the Antarctic coast and willing to break international laws, you can feed yourself fairly readily by taking to the local wildlife. But if you run out of fuel, you'll die of dehydration. In the dry air of the region, this would take half a day to make itself an obvious problem, a whole day to leave you pretty much useless, and about two days to kill you, assuming you had some companions to huddle with to avoid freezing to death first. If you've already thrown wildlife conservation legislation to the wind and chowed down on some Weddell seal, you might as well use the blubber these animals are insulated with in your stove. So you could last a long time on the Antarctic coast, and people have done exactly that in past expeditions. Heading inland is a different matter, and as so much early human activity in Antarctica focused on getting to points of interest well away from the coast, many people ended up dead or had very bad times when they ran out of fuel or food. Skewers, the fearless uber scavengers of the southern latitudes, occasionally turn up on the polar plateau, but their presence there is usually better geared toward their feeding on any humans they encounter than the other way round, so once you're away from the coast, there's little scope to pick up further fuel or food as a hunter and collector. Depots become all-important in these scenarios, and feature prominently in many of the expeditions I'll be discussing. The Primus pressurised kerosene stoves, commonly used in expeditions of the heroic era of Antarctic exploration, and still in use today, are very efficient, but can't operate at the temperatures experienced in Antarctic without a little help. 
The kerosene won't burn cleanly unless preheated to the optimum flash point, and the soot resulting from attempting a brew-up from a cold start will block the pinhole nozzle in the burner teat, resulting in your tent filling first with acrid black smoke and then with dead people, killed from smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide hypoxia. Additional fuel in the form of methylated spirits is needed. The flash point of meths is lower than that of kerosene, but it packs less energy per unit of fuel and is far better at setting fire to your sleeping bag, tent and self, all of which can have catastrophic consequences, so only enough metho is carried to preheat enough kerosene to get the stove going. Once hot, the metal of the stove preheats the kerosene being fed into the burner, but the burn is still less than perfect and the stove requires regular dismantling and cleaning to perform well over an extended period. The pinhole nozzle in the teat of the stove's burner needs to be cleared daily, if not hourly, during extended use. This is done with a tool called a pricker, a metal pin mounted in a handle. It's best to order or make spare prickers before setting off. The Antarctic research events I've taken part in had sophiative pricks, but never enough prickers, and the potential tragedy of dying for want of a ten-cent piece of metal is such that I wear mine on a lanyard around my neck. But this is more a style conceit than a failsafe, and one of many sartorial quirks you find among people operating in isolation in an unusual sensory environment. To cook a full meal on a stove in a tent takes about one and a half hours, and, if the kerosene fuel were to burn to completion, would take about twice as much air as you find in a Scott Polar tent. So effective ventilation is essential if you like your food hot and your blood oxygenated. So, while I've been waffling on about kerosene and dehydration and hypoxia, I was also putting some metho in the little preheating cup below the primus burner, lighting it, waiting for the burner to reach operating temperature, pumping the kerosene tank up the pressure with the small priming handle, opening the valve and achieving the purring blue flame of a primus stove operating at its best. The scraping noise you've heard periodically is me scooping a handful of snow from the stash we keep just inside the hut door, specifically for melting. Every drop of water we use here for drinking, cooking and, on the rare occasions a lull in the work schedule coincides with fine weather, washing ourselves, comes from the ice and snow surrounding us. The easiest way of getting the water we need is to find the least compacted snow you can and to drop it into the cooking pot a bit at a time. You start with just a small lump. Chuck it in and get the lid on to keep the heat where it's most needed. Starting with too large a lump just wastes fuel because a large mass of ice can prevent the temperature in the pot from reaching the latent heat of melting and the snow just sits there. It will eventually melt, if you have enough fuel, but it's more efficient to start small. Once you've melted that first bit, you have a layer of hot water in the bottom of the pot. This makes for a better transfer of heat from the pot to any subsequent snow, and you can begin dropping in some larger chunks, but it's still a slow process, requiring constant attention, fiddling with the stove to tweak its performance, lifting the lid to check on progress, and cleaning the underside of the pot. Once you have enough water to do the job at hand, you are free to enjoy your water in a way that people who live with regular rainfall will never fully appreciate. In the case of these episodes, I will be making my coffee with the fruits of my slaving over a hot stove while gabbling to you. Any surplus will be stored in one of the many thermos flasks we keep handy as a means to make the most of the fuel we have at hand. Letting water turn to ice in a landscape already replete with the stuff is something of a ball terror, 
particularly when people were dying in the region just a century ago for want of enough stores to get them through another couple of days. I tend not to complain about the quality of the coffee I drink. I like a nice espresso, but I won't fuss if all that's available is cheap, instant factory floor sweepings. Brewing up for me is as much about ritual and setting aside time for niceties as it is about the headaches I get from caffeine withdrawal, and I don't care about the flavour as much as I do that my coffee is like my wife, hot and strong and black. I also think coffee is a luxury item we have come to take for granted. I can't stand people complaining about the quality of a cup someone's handed them when they're travelling at 500 knots at 30,000 feet. To complain about the niceties, particularly when they are complimentary, often misses the big picture. I'm speaking to you by electronically remembered sounds, perhaps long after I died, in a landscape that is so indifferent to human life that without large quantities of equipment and effort, I would die in short order. When humans first came here, help would have taken over a year to respond to an emergency at this latitude, but today I could be on a helicopter and heading for medical attention in under an hour if the need arises. Antarctica is home to more superlatives and staggering statistics than anywhere else on Earth, but we have a pretty cruisy time of it these days, and I'm not going to complain about the coffee for want of anything else to complain about. That said, I have a plunger and a stash of a nice dark grind, so I'll see how far into the series I can eke that out before I turn to the freeze-dried stuff that the government provides. I think the current brew is steep for long enough, so I'll sign off with a hearty cheers, toasting what I hope will be the first of many tea breaks we'll share. Tune in next week when I'll discuss the geographic context in which our story takes place. Take care and appreciate your coffee. This episode was recorded with feedback from the irreverent Mr Black and Robert de Graw in mind, and I'm grateful for their input.